For me alone was Don Quixote born, and I for him. He knew how to act, and I to write. The two of us alone are one, despite and regardless of the false writer who dared, or will dare, to write with a coarse and badly designed ostrich feather about the exploits of my valorous knight. For it is not a burden for his shoulders or a subject for his cold creativity, and you will warn him, if you do ever happen to meet him, to let the weary and crumbling bones of Don Quixote rest in the grave, and not attempt, contrary to all the statutes of death, to carry them off, removing him from the tomb where he really and truly lies, incapable of undertaking a third journey or a new sally, for to mock the many undertaken by so many knights errant, the two he made were enough, and they have brought delight and pleasure to everyone who knows them in these kingdoms as well as those abroad. And with this you will fulfill your Christian duty by giving good counsel to those who do not wish you well. And I shall be pleased and proud to have been the first who completely enjoyed the fruits of his writing just as he wished. For my only desire has been to have people reject and despise the false and nonsensical histories of the books of chivalry, which are already stumbling over the history of my true Don Quixote, and will undoubtedly fall to the ground. Wale. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Friday, May 24th, 2019, and somewhere in La Mancha, in a place whose name I do not care to remember, a gentleman lived not long ago. Yes, folks, it's book club time again, and tonight with the book club regulars, we'll dig into the ingenious gentleman, Sir Quixote of La Mancha, or just Don Quixote, which is a Spanish novel by Miguel de Cervantes, published in two parts in 1605 and 1615. Don Quixote is the most influential work of literature from the Spanish Golden Age and the entire Spanish literary canon. As a founding work of modern Western literature, it regularly appears high on the lists of greatest works of fiction ever published. The story follows the adventures of a noble who reads so many chivalric romances that he loses his sanity and decides to become a knight errant. Reviving chivalry and serving his country under the name Don Quixote de la Mancha, he recruits a simple farmer, Sancho Panza, as his squire, who often employs a unique earthy wit in dealing with Don Quixote's rhetorical orations on antiquated knighthood. Don Quixote, in the first part of the book, does not see the world for what it is and prefers to imagine that he is living out a knightly story. Throughout the story, Cervantes uses literary techniques as realism, metatheater, and intertextuality, the book has a major influence on the literary community as evidenced by direct references in The Three Musketeers and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn as well as the word Quixotic and the epithet Lothario. 
The latter refers to a character in the, in the impertinently curious man, a nested story that appears in part one. When first published, Don Quixote was usually interpreted as a comic novel. After the French Revolution, it was better known for its central ethic that individuals can be right while society is quite wrong and seen as disenchanting. In the 19th century, it was seen as a social commentary but no one could easily tell whose side Cervantes was on. Many critics came to view the work as a tragedy in which Don Quixote's idealism and nobility are viewed by the post-chivalric world as insane and are defeated and rendered useless by common reality. By the 20th century, the novel has come to occupy a canonical space and one of the foundations of modern literature. And so, how are you guys doing? Are you ready to dive into this monster of a book? Who is? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone make it to the end of the Quixote? Yeah. I yeah. Did. I didn't. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot about it for a couple of days, the last couple of days, and I was like, oh, shit. And I, I put, did a push and got pretty... I, I mean, I, I'm way over half. I was like, I'm two thirds done. Well, I want to. I mean, so it's it feels interesting because part one and part two feel quite different to me. But, mm -hmm. um, what do you? How does this connect to the works that we looked at? Does it does it mesh somehow, like on a sync sense? Yeah. Um. Well, the fact that uh, Borges was so into Don Quixote, I think I really feels like, uh, especially when you include the second half of the book and all the weirdness involved in that, that it's, uh, um, it's, you can see how it directly influenced, uh, Borges. Um, I think even going back to the one before that to, uh, the Nabokov, I think he gave lectures on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of, um, and I think I mentioned this to Zenor, but in Infinite Jest, the idea of the figurants, these people in the background, whereas in Quixote, you know, um, he's looking in on his own story. Like, uh, you know, there's there's an outside and an inside thing going on. I think there's a Dickian influence as well, just because there's like multiple Quixotes by the end and there's yeah. the fakes and the reels and... Right. Sort of uh, reminded me of, um, I'm not sure which Dick novel, uh, maybe Ubik or, um, uh, no, The Man in the High Castle, uh, potentially. So I know we've done that one in the book club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking, SJ, of what you said about Borges, uh, uh, that his short stories are so radical that it seems that they should have been banned, you know? And I was thinking... <laughs> I was thinking it's almost you could apply that to Don Quixote, you know, like it's still it's it's a very radical take on what reality means. I think um, it was also radical from a social standpoint, but because these fools or these buffoons were making the statements, it's almost like mm -hmm. I was thinking about like the the fool is able to make the to say the things that no one else can say because it's polite society. Right. And so you can comment upon the, the you know, whatever 
uh, ills of the world are going on. So I, one of the interesting things to note is that we talk about empire light on this show, but Spain was the empire at that point in time. You know, Philip mm-hmm. K. Dick again. The, mm-hmm. uh, the empire never ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw... Yeah, there's a, a lot of flourish. Just to, just to quickly say, these flourishes, philosophical flourishes, and um, at many parts of the novel, but there does seem to be this idea, like uh, I, I remember particularly Sancho's wife uh, has some lines that are like, well, why would I want that? Just let me ride the donkey. I'll get there quicker, and let me eat this barley or whatever it was. I think it was um, uh, buckwheat. You know, and so there's this kind of um, uh, indictment of the falsity of maybe higher society uh, at times. I mean, there's a lot in the book, but I did, I did feel like there was a celebration of the lower class at multiple points in the novel. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I, was, I watched this uh, this talk by uh, Tarek Ali. Do you, know, do you know that guy? He was a uh, um, basically like a 1960s radical. Now he's based in London. I think he teaches there. But uh, he was talking um, that uh, Don Quixote is really a, uh, a lament for the days in Spain prior to 1492 when the... Uh, mm. When all of Spain um, was unified, so-called, but um, the Moors were, uh, the Jews were kicked out at that time, and then the Moors were kicked out afterwards. And uh, whereas before, before that, you had uh, this kind of uh, basically like a, a multicultural um, uh, kind of. More Muslim, well, a place where Muslims, Jews, Christians lived pretty peacefully together um, prior to that, and uh, there was this exchange of ideas that w- was pretty unprecedented, and and that uh, after that time, 1492, um, when the Catholics took over everything, and then the Inquis- Inquisition started up, and the Jews were kicked out of the country, and it all changed. Zenor Terry Gilliam makes makes a comment directly about that when discussing the making of the movie. He said almost the same thing you said. It's really interesting. So, uh, yeah. so Gilliam's thinking about the same thing when making that movie. Early on, it feels like we spent a lot of time with this book, and so I read, uh, I read a history about the book, but it was a month ago, and now it's like out of my head, which is too bad. But I seem to remember early on, Zanar, you were sharing that there was some speculation that perhaps Cervantes was also Jewish. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys caught it. Like throughout the uh, the book, a few times Sancho refers to himself mm. as an old Christian, yeah? Yeah. Um, and so in Spain at that time, the old Christians were the ones that were always Christians. But then after 1492, you had this phenomenon where a, a bunch of people, either Moors, like uh, um, Islamic Moors, I guess, and then Jewish people converted to Christianity and mm. secretly kind of uh, tried to hide their own roots. And, and then they were called new Christians. And, and there's a sense that maybe Quixote was a new Christian in the in the story, and perhaps Cervantes was as well, because you you read into his life, and he, there's so much so much shit he went through that. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. You kind of you kind of wonder if he was like uh, 
being persecuted for maybe for his background or for for whatever reason um and that he could have been a uh he could have been a jewish converso and then there's mm. there's all this speculation on top of that 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 a big layer to don quixote is 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 kabbalah you know? yeah i buy uh, that um that Dulcinea was the the Shekinah, and or however you pronounce that, and and uh, Quixote himself with, was was uh, Keshot, which in uh, wow. in Hebrew means truth. Um, so that that uh, a big part of that was was the Kabbalah, um, which is something we can talk about. I think I think it is kind of related to this idea of uh, of chivalry, right? Um. Well, so it's interesting because his first, I think his, Cervantes' first novel was called Galatea and it was a pastoral. So that kind of links us back to the, you know, that idyllic Arcadian, you know, thing that Nabokov was trying to capture. Yeah. But, and it was interesting that Galatea was one of the books that they almost burned when they're burning all of <laughs> yeah, uh, which was a great <laughs> scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, and the, that uh, was I think, great. Yeah. I think the curate or something says, "Oh, I know this guy, Cervantes. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not so bad, so he can save this book." <laughs> but yeah. I think you know, there's something Cervantes might be saying is that you know this this looking back to this time. So it's the idea of making America great again. Like, yeah. how far back do you have to go to when it was good? <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and I think you know Cervantes might have been saying that th- there wasn't there wasn't a time. Mm. I mean, so it's funny because recently I I heard uh, Winona Leduc say, "Oh yeah, you want to make America great? You know, we need we need the nine million herd of bi- bison again. We need uh, three thousand varieties of corn. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that was that was a great time." Huh? <laughs> You need forests that stretch from the Atlantic all the way to the the deserts, right? (laughs) (laughs) One thing I just I wanted to throw in here on the history and context is that that time in um, Europe, I mean, and just to say in the text, the writer, the author, Cervantes, is clearly educated on like astrological, magical traditions and occult traditions that they were extant during that time. Yeah, they were taken on by. All over. I mean, it's just references to the stars, Mars, Moon. I mean, these are just, I mean, ideas that are would be common, I think, amongst that time. But you have even like in the Germanic world around the same time, people influenced by Kabbalah that were, you know, I'm not sure if they would were Jews technically, but those ideas definitely seeped into even the occultism of Central Europe. Um, and and this is also around the time of Shakespeare. Yeah, and so exactly. to me. It, yeah, it, it, it to me it really speaks to maybe like a trans-European sort of educated the educated elite of Europe would have been into these ideas, we, and Cervantes yeah. clearly has an education uh, at a high level, um, and I don't think it necessarily means that there's you know wh- whatever his provenance is religiously or ethnically, I I, I think that the um, evidence it could it, it's open it could be open-ended given that he's educated like this because I think a lot of people all over Europe had were like dealing with these ideas. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, uh, um, like Doug, you were saying the time of this novel. So it was uh, 1605, and then the next one was 1615. Which is a um, big space. Ten years, yeah. Yeah, we would so, call that a reboot now. Right. 
but he, just to put that in in the, in the context that that SJ is talking about, it's like uh, like Bruno, he was burned at the stake, sixteen hundred, right? And so it, this is just on the end of this whole wave of the Renaissance, the, the occult Renaissance, right? And then, uh, and then Shakespeare's coming out with his big tragedies around the same time, like the, the big four tragedies. Actually, I've I've gone now and and, and I'm reading all of those uh, after I finish this, just to get a a better context of it. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. This is the thing, uh, Shakespeare and Cervantes die basically on the same day. Like what, they don't know exactly for sure. Maybe um, definitely in the same like 48 hour space, you know, like, uh, um, but it's such a weird coincidence that they die together. And then uh, it seems that uh, Cervantes wasn't aware of Shakespeare's work, but um, definitely Shakespeare was aware of Don Quixote because he planned, he did actually write a, uh, a play. He co-wrote it with somebody else uh, called Cardinio. And that was based on, you know, that, uh, oh, yeah. the yeah. impertinent curiosity part like yeah. that. It was based on that character and all of his, all of his adventures. But unfortunately that one, the, the play Cardinio was lost. We don't really know exactly what Shakespeare thought of Cervantes, but it was like, yeah, definitely. Like you're saying SJ, there's, there's like, uh, all through Europe at that time, it's just this, this final, this final end to this this big space of time of uh, like the occult Renaissance, right? Yeah, I just I just want to throw in some a little bit more con- uh, context there because like uh, so there's this famous book Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, right? That comes out in 1533. I just looked it up. Um, and that, I mean, he was gathering all of the information available to him, I think even um, earlier around 1500, because that the publication came way at the end of his life, but he wrote it as a young man. Um, and that he was living in Austria, I think the Czech Republic, Italy. Um, and so it was much farther east. But the other thing about that is that he was influenced by the Picatrix, which, of course, is a Spanish mm-hmm. magical text. Uh, translated from the Arabic into Spanish, and I think like 1150, something like this. And so, I mean, it's going back to this idea of ideas coming through the pre, uh, what what are we going to call the 1492 Spain, like Spanish, the empire. And then before that was some kind of uh, cultural milieu that was a kind of a utopian-like mix. But in that world, you had a lot of books that were saved from the Hellenistic world, translated into Arabic, and then traveled all the way through the Arabic world, through Spain, and then retranslated into Latin, um, and then given back to Europe. Not all the books, but many of them. And so there is this kind of, and this this is at like 1150, 1200. And so just to get some timing on this, there's you know a several hundred year uh, cult and magical tradition that he seems to be heavily influenced by. And so does Agrippa about 100 years before, or 80 years before. Yeah, oh, and yeah. SJ, he's parodying that sort of shift of trans because one of the one of the Quixote books is found in a Moorish. Uh, am I correct there that um, 
the book, one of the Quixote books is the narrative says the narrator says has been retranslated from a Moorish text. What so, about like that was one of the yeah, first yeah, yeah. major points where like he stops it right in the the grip of <laughs> the scene and he's like, well, the, this history ends here. And you're like, yeah. we need to we need to go. And then he tells about you know going into this bazaar to find the book so they can pick up the thread and see what happens in the key moment of action, right? Yeah, so this is this is how he presents himself, Cervantes. It, it's like the original story, like uh, Dennis is saying, written in Arabic by this guy Sid Hamet Benengali, right? Yeah. And then that's translated into uh, Spanish, and then Cervantes finds the translation and he edits the translation. So he didn't even tra- like according to his own fiction, like he didn't even translate it. He's editing a translation that is written by this Moorish guy. That we find out later in the book, in the se- in the in the second half, Don Quixote said, "All these Moors lie. <laughs> like tell lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't trust it anyway." You know, like, <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it's amazing. Like the, the that seems something from a from a Borges short story. Like you even. <laughs> Yeah. how that's set up you know when you enter into part two it's kind of a doozy because it does like dennis said earlier it feels like you're inside the thing like before you're looking at it from the outside and all of a sudden you're like inside it and you're like what is going on like there's a joke and everyone's in on it but so even like with the dutch or the duke and the duchess parts where you know they have this this uh kind of long-running gag that they're you know teasing the the two main characters for their madness oh, it's, it's, it's full-on psychological warfare almost you know, like way yeah. beyond teasing you know like uh, it just... but at some point it just feels like the teasing becomes like <laughs> the funniest you know so when sancho becomes a governor of an insula that's not really an insula you know he's really the governor <laughs> yeah 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 it's like a Truman show. And then by the end, I mean, it's so surprising because he kind of wakes up and he says, all right, I'm really this guy again. That was some sort of acid trip, you know, or a multi-decade delusion. And now I'm back to reality. What's the word that that can... And nobody wants him to wake up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) At that time, everybody else is, is, is so much a part of his trip that they don't want, they don't want this world to end. Like Have you guys encountered delusion. that word Watiko? I think it's called. It's yeah. like, yeah, it reminded me of that. And this, all of these narratives about enchantment at times really kind of wigged me out because, like, you know, we can see that these levels in our own world, and uh, you know, and it, it's 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 a little, it's a, it's distressing. Yeah, I think by the end, I mean, it could be a statement on. Uh, mythology and like the collective psychosis that is culture is that i mean i don't know if uh, yeah. mckenna was in, was influenced by this but it kind of has a mckenna-ish quality as well right right you know um culture is not your friend it's a collective yep. delusion kind of wake up in the dream this kind of thing well just it's just the fact that this in the second part the first part exists you know the first part exists as almost like a character in itself you know the first part of the book and then everybody that don quixote and sancho meet almost have already read the first part you know so it's, it's like it's as if we read the first part and then here's the real don quixote and, and sancho in front of us yeah <laughs> yeah how do, how do we interact with them <laughs> you know um 
and and then they're having to deal with all these people. They're having to deal with this this yeah, kind of crazy fame, you know, like a. And then the yeah, then there's the fake. <laughs> then well, there's the, the fake book, you know. I that... almost felt like we needed to read the fake book to have that context and perspective of what you know that author said they were doing. Yeah, yeah. From from what Cervantes well, and and other critics that I've looked at, it seems that the fake book um, is just looking at the kind of formula of of the first book, yeah, and then just tries to repeat the formula ad nauseum almost, you know. Well, that um, fake book sounds like endnotes too. You know, it's like this whole sub book. Yeah, or yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, the, but well, that's the other well. interesting thing is like the the genre like this you know these these tales the knight's tales that he's mimicking like there's something there's conventions that he's definitely adhering to and at times it's it's like you know he has so embodied this this knightly tale that it's like oh my gosh this is just so much would you you know with the the florid language and the different things that they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's an incredible book. Like it, I, I, it's now one of my favorites ever. I think it's just it's such an amazing book. I think. How did he? How is this? How is this of that time, Zanor? Like. Yeah, you, like you, you get the sense that it shouldn't be, but then, yeah, now I'm reading Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is so incredible as well. You know, it's a, and then. Um, so there's this question that um, has been asked to all these different authors, like subsequent to that time, like it, the, the it's, it's like the desert island question, right? If you could, uh, if you had to go to a desert deserted island and uh, you could only bring one book, what would you bring? And the and the books that always come up are the the works of Shakespeare, um, the King James version of the Bible, <laughs> and then and then uh, Don Quixote. And they're all the same time. Like King James version of the Bible is 1611, and this one is uh, 1605, 1615, and then Shakespeare's around the same period as well. You know, and so it's, it's what happened at that time. You know, it's like. Well, let me posit a theory. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just because I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to. I might ask that a few times just because my connection, I think, is a little tenuous. But I mean, and this might be too wild for the conversation. I'll just say no, this, and, then we, can, and no. then we can get out, and then we don't have to consider this again. Okay. But you know, this idea of like state-sponsored propaganda, and so you know, uh, the the technology that is the vanguard of the day. This it seems like one way we could look at history is how states or power. Let's just say power uses technology to kind of control the collective mentality to kind of manipulate the masses to or and, and it maybe and I'm not even saying it flows one way but that there's this there's this kind of dance where you have manipulators and kind of ideas that they're um, taking from the collective reframing casting back it's just it's, it's an ongoing dance let's say of the power and those that are subjected to power and there's theories about Shakespeare yeah, this is exactly what Shakespeare was, was kind of a, the ultimate form of soft power that you I mean, basically, the English language, many words were invented in, the, in those uh, plays one that you would sort of, of you know, one third of it. And so it's this idea like John D, for example, we're going to create this new golden age where England is at the center. He actually envisioned the idea of the um, what the, the new world and righteous empire. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the empire. And so could there 
could this be competing kind of power uh, power structures? That is to say, Spanish Empire, which I know they were competing in the New World, and it may be that Cervantes is kind of their attempt to kind of uh, inject the Spanish culture and sort of the Spanish philosophy. I'm just throwing this out as a theory. I haven't even considered mm. it at this moment. But maybe Ooh. these things are are products of this particular formula that was in, in use at that time. Well, well, one thing about that is that, uh, um, so he writes in Castellano, which becomes Spanish, right? And part of the reason it, it's it, like, part of the reason why it becomes Spanish is is through Don Quixote and, and other works, right? So before that, you had many different dialects in Spain. And I, I was just listening to some professors talking about this, uh, the difference between a dialect and a language is that a dialect, um, a language is a dialect with an army, you know. Mm. And so, so along with the, <laughs> along with the, along with the language comes the comes the kind of mythology, right? Which is, um, like you're saying, it's yeah, definitely comes in with Cervantes and and Shakespeare, and certainly with the uh, King James version of the Bible. But on the other hand, it's like I always think about that. Like if it's a uh, if it is a, a conspiracy of the elite, right, which um, which there's a dispute about, right? Like on one hand, maybe Shakespeare's Francis Bacon, right, or or uh, yeah. the Earl of Oxford. But on the other hand, he's just or a, a group poor, of people. But on the other hand, he's just he's just one poor uh, uh, um, actor, right? And and I I think that's quite possible as well. In Cervantes. Cervantes as well, like he, uh, he's a pretty marginalized figure, like dies pretty poor, um, had a hard life all the way through, um, unless his biography is bullshit, um, it seems that this is coming from the margins as well, you know, and so I, I kind of think, like if it is, if it is an elite conspiracy to put these works of literature across, then... I'm all for it, <laughs> you know. Like these are the best, best works of literature existing. You know what it makes well, me think. You know what it makes me think of is that you know, um, like uh, uh, the convexity, <laughs> and uh, or uh, or uh, or the, how the Death Star works, in in that all of these beams focalize to create the big beam in the in the death star and i think it consciousness can be like that where all of that is um focusing in and one person ends up being the projection of all of that all of that the the right. language behind it so i'm open to it being a, a collection of people that was working together to do it but i maybe it's something weirder you know i mean i i definitely think it's something weirder but it's not um it's not necessarily entirely nefarious. Yeah, Although I don't I, even mean. I'm that, yeah. I'm sure it's not, you know, because like you can read these works and they affect you, they affect us so strongly, you know, um, and they still speak to us, right? Like they still speak to us today. Um, so I, it, I, uh, I don't <laughs> like uh, Don Quixote's whole thing is it's all enchantment, right? But a number of times through the book, he says there are good enchanters and then there are evil yeah. enchanters, and there's kind of. So I, I and see. to make my my point, I didn't actually mean Death Star as an evil. I meant just the concave nature of it, focalizing. Oh, sure. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't mean that necessarily as an evil. Yeah, thing, yeah, but. I I caught that. I think uh, 
Well, and just to clarify my point, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, that's why I was when I said it, I was saying power and the, the interplay between power and its sure. environment. To be specific, that I, I mean, I, I don't think it was three guys in a room saying, "All right, let's." I mean, I, I don't discount that. I think that could be part of what I'm describing, but I do think that power, by its nature, will mm. take from its its environment and reproduce and kind of give legs and financial support. I mean, to publish this stuff, like thousands of copies, yeah. I think in the in the novels or in the book by 1615. There's how many thousands of copies that were purported to be to have been distributed and sold? Thirty thousand or something. Yeah, so some wild amount. So, so just to say, I mean, for me, that's part of the mystery. Like they can both be true, and I think they both right. probably are true. That that why do certain things have the um, the um, enchantment? Why, why do certain ideas yeah. enchant such that power would say, okay, this is what I think we're going to sort of not censor, for example. And maybe the songwriter SJ. <laughs> yeah, the songwriter from under the, the Silver Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, in the, uh, in the under the Silver Lake. Yeah. Well, so part one is so funny. So it is enchanting because it is so funny, but it's also like just brutal. Like they are getting you know the the snot kicked out of them in every step, <laughs> and yeah. it, it seems like the the brutality eases up in part two, and then also. It, it's it's just part two is slightly different, you know, in that like Sancho becomes more like everything coming out of his mouth is like a proverb and it's yeah. both kind of funny, but also there's a kind of wisdom to the things mm. that he's saying. Um, I feel like in many ways it's Sancho's story almost. He becomes more of the central character of the second yeah. novel. Yeah. Well, there's also something that I grappled with is there's like a... The Don Quixote that Sancho presents to people in the book, and he's like, oh, he's the greatest guy, and he doesn't mean any harm, and he's just, you know, he wants to do good. But, you know, the Don Quixote that I kind of know, he's pretty selfish. He's not like, he's not like a great guy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a dubious individual. He's so I guess so. There is definitely like like this ego that we're maintaining. Well, he he would call it his honor, right? And right. I think that's I think that would be different than ego. Like he's um like he is sort of selfless. He's he 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 fully conforms with his own um, his principles of knight errantry, and uh, but. His honor is bound up in that as well, right? So, so it's like uh, I don't know. I wouldn't call him dubious. Like he, he's not—he's not trying to trick anyone, or he's not trying to pull one over on anyone, right? He's just living according to these mad principles that he upheld as being true. But, but part of but part of that is like he's got to assert himself as. Don Quixote de la Mancha. <laughs> like he, he has to. He's like a. Uh, he's like a rapper or something, you know. Like a, that's that's part of his his culture. Sometimes it's like his intention is pure, but if you were to remove his belief about a situation from the situation, it's clearly an insane, like toxic interaction. Like he's going to go attack some people walking on the road that are doing <laughs> nothing wrong. You know? you know, and so there is this element that he is kind of bad in some ways, <laughs> if you remove this intention. <laughs> and he's, oh. 
Well, so the, the other interesting thing is that early on, and I and I caught it was so according to Cervantes, uh, Quixote is nearing fifty. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, it seems like our cinematic portrayal of him is always in his seventies. Like yeah. And then if you start to think about Gilliam's characters, he tends to have kind of an older, 70-year-old, almost Quixote-like madman. Well, Jonathan Price jokes about that. He said that uh, Gilliam had to wait until he turned 70 to to finally finish it. So, <laughs> Huh. But like Baron huh. Munchausen or uh, yeah. know, the Imaginarium Dr. Parnassus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, these are kind of that same archetype a little bit. Enchanter. Yeah, yeah I'd, um, definitely a part of Don Quixote's character is he, he does have strength, you know, like he would have to have some sort of strength to, to do what he does. Um, I think an older man of 70, it'd be, it'd be hard to do what he was doing. I think. <laughs> And he talks about all the time, like the strength of his arm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I, I think I liked part one better, but there were moments in part two that were just so delightful. You know, when the when he had, and I love that he kept changing his name, you know, so he was the Knight of the Sorrowful Face to start with, or maybe it was Sorrowful Countenance. And that was because he got all his teeth knocked out in part one, and it's bleeding yeah. everywhere. And she's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> but then uh, when he became the Knight of the Lions, man, that scene was just so yeah. great. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody thought <laughs> he turned lean. Um and then he just happened to uh, come out of that successfully because the the lion, I guess, was well fed and wasn't interested in him. Yeah. yeah. No, there's some there's some hilarious bits in here all the way through the, the, this. That I, um. yeah, the flourishes of like just wisdom. I mean, I, there was times that I was uh, listening and just thinking, "Wow, this is really wise." Uh, you know, and sometimes it came from Don. Sometimes it came from, uh, you know, Sancho. Don, by the way, I liked in the movie. He's like, Don. He starts calling him Don like he's just some old, you know, some American <laughs> middle-aged guy. You know? <laughs> um, you know, so anyhow. But, yeah, the wisdom was very impressed with setting everything else aside. There's the uh, Cervantes, the opportunity to really convey some just wisdom about life that I think is very profound. Things about relationships and it seems like I think the role of like marriage or women should definitely be analyzed too because it's so uh, traditional in a way. But there is definitely this esteem for the, the feminine and this kind of respect for uh, femininity and, and the honor of, of women. It's mm-hmm. while, while on the one hand traditional, on the other hand, I think admirable. He, he, part of that was he had unmarried sisters. Uh, Cervantes did and so in his life there were problems where it depending on landowning and wealth and being married and there were certain rules and um, you know he was kind of defending their honor in some of these tales as far as or exploring ideas that went against what was the honor code then um 
Doug, you mentioned in the email this connection of uh, of this book and the whole tradition of knight errantry and and chivalry and maybe stretching back to the troubadours. Yeah, like this whole tradition um, where. Uh, and Joseph Campbell talks a lot about this as well, like this, this, this ideal, this feminine ideal, right? Which might very well stem back to the uh, Kabbalah or earlier sources, right? But uh, yeah, just this idea that uh, there's this um, perfect love that could exist. Like I get, I guess that's sort of behind uh, um, Dante as well. An Arthurian myth, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I took a class in college. It was called uh, Arthurian Romances. And so it was just reading a lot of those. Uh, you know, so there's several in English, you know, Parsifal. There's several in French. And they're kind of early medieval period. So, you know, anywhere mm. from like 1,000 to... 1200 1300 is kind of like the heyday of that and so like some context that i have for that is like so let's say there really was this this you know time of men on horsebacks you know prancing around doing this kind of stuff in wales <laughs> it's probably like our cowboy and indian period in in the u.s where <laughs> you know it's like this short little window that they romanticize for years and years and years after the actual, you know, 50 years that had actually happened mm. or even shorter. And I think for political reasons, and this is what I was kind of getting at earlier. I mean, this idea that it's American exceptionalism, it's the kind of uh, saving the, 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 the European savior. I mean, that narrative was essential even in the 20, 20th century to justify the expansionism and the militarism. So I think there's reasons why these things kind of these little mm. pockets become the, Something that probably weren't even uh, in their in reality didn't even exist, but that it's kind of bits and pieces are grabbed, and then you sort of construct and graft together this this myth, um, this nostalgia, and that's like this make America great idea, make America great idea again. Um, I think that's really interesting, Doug. This this just like why was this? Um, what what's the nostalgia for? You know. Um, was it great? Anyway, um, you know, it's almost like this wasn't ever even real. It was this like like this is kind of a a fiction. It's a work of fiction. <laughs> uh, anyhow, well, I hear Lacey laughing there. What did you What did you find? Did you make it to the end today, Lacey? I didn't make it to the end, unfortunately. I tried. And then no, I didn't either, Lacey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Lacey and I talked a little bit, and she said that uh, at times there were lots of words. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so that. Don Quixote would just go off and just go on and on and on. You're like, come <laughs> on. His, his speeches were so great, though. Like, it was so amazing. They, they yeah. were. They were so great. They were very yeah. epic speeches. Uh, but yeah, I'd like. Uh, I listened to it a lot driving, and so I'd be listening and listening, and then be, it'd say the same thing over and a couple of times, and then I'd find myself like not listening and have to come back. Yeah. Sometimes rewind. But um, you got to bump it, the speed up. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> one and a half times around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was so funny, and so it it was very enjoyable to be doing these long road trips and um, and have that as entertainment. It was just like sometimes I had to switch gears and like listen to some music and get my brain back to like normal speed almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was like I liked that it was these little snippets that then built this bigger picture and um, especially the one with, you know, all the with the inn and how many stories were within the inn and mm. and all the different characters and all their backstories and it. I find his be- his writing is beautiful and really painted. It was able to really paint the picture in my imagination and like really see all of it happening. Um, I was easily drawn into the story, which I really liked. And then I I love Sancho in the second half. I especially him as the governor. governor. <laughs> He's just the that that story really was entertaining for me because I he was just so smart and I was listening to it this morning getting ready for work and I was saying out loud like wow Sancho yeah that's really great (laughs) (laughs) you really showed that person how they weren't being truthful yeah he became incredibly wise then yeah somehow somehow (laughs) 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 Don Quixote can't believe it yeah okay. that part in the in um at the end of uh part one what you're talking about where all these stories come together and it's just like a coincidence or synchronicity after synchronicity it's just like this like a storm that comes together and everybody's connected it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh it's kind of over the top in a way but it's <laughs> it's interesting that it's that's all caused like by Don Quixote's madness. Like couples get together, rightful couples, two 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 sets of couples get together, and what uh, brothers get together, and <laughs> like it, it, it all it all just um, congeals into this big happy ending because of uh, um, because of Don Quixote's madness. If that hadn't existed, then none of it would have taken place. Yeah, that and is just so to true. say on that. I think. The purity, this is a, going back to the comment I was saying earlier, like his intention is so pure that I think yeah. there's a statement there that the purity of intention is a power in and of itself that even though the person holding that intention is delusional and maybe even threatening lives by that delusion, ultimately that purity sort of wins the day and these magical, mm-hmm. beautiful things happen, this goodness happens. And I saw that yeah. more in the first book than the second book. The second book seemed to be more of like a tricksterism and this kind of weird, like uh, modern. We, we talked about earlier. The second book to me feels like the one that's way more before before its time in yeah. terms of like the, just the 20th century and more mercurial and occult and mm-hmm. you know um, these kind of uh, unreality and all the things we already talked about. But yeah, the, the first book had this purity idea that I thought was quite profound and inspiring. So that's interesting because Zenora, you're you're taking him on as his terms, where he is embodying like that knightly ethos. You know, he is the the courtly love, the troubadour mm-hmm. mentality, and yeah, therefore searching, searching for the eternal feminine. Yeah, that we can't really judge him by our own worldview because he's in his own world. But what mm-hmm. you're saying is he's he's 
taking that worldview and that that little you know glowing sun and bringing light to everyone around him mhm but i, I it, it's hard because <laughs> you know there is so sure like uh it, it, there's a balance thing cuz he's still existing in our world and i just look at him like what are you doing <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's kind of like uh, a lot of people think that faust is this great character too but you know uh, like because he's so driven to do whatever it is that he's doing you know to explore to find the truth but that you know there's just all this wreckage behind him through his his striving you know so and i i look at don quixote the same way where you know it's like but you're right boy there's there's both what i was reading i was reading about the um the different uh, interpretations or the different um, reception that uh, that Don Quixote received through throughout the centuries, right? And when it when it first came out, everybody was just laughing at him, like like you said, like just saying this guy's an idiot, like he's causing all this havoc, and it's it just like. So when the book first came out, they kind of enjoyed him as just this insane, like just a madman who causes havoc. And then, uh, then he starts to get more kind of respected towards 1700, and people take him more seriously. But then, by the time of the Romantic period, um, uh, 1800s, that that period, he becomes this romantic hero, you know, who uh, dares to um, put the imagination in front of everything else, right? Like uh, defy so-called reality and put the imagination first um and so he he becomes this kind of romantic hero and that that lasts even to the modernist period in the uh, in the early 20th century and then from that time after then there's all these different interpretations of and, and it, so it's may, maybe more of a kind of a realistic backlash again against him um but but for a while, especially the romantic period, like I'm saying, is like he he's this hero, you know. He's like the. <laughs> but you can tell for some, certain people, he's still like that. Like um, uh, Sub Commander Marcos, do you know the 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 guy used to lead. He he didn't call himself a leader, like he, but basically he was a spokesperson or maybe the leader of the Zapatistas in Mexico. Um, this kind of anarchistic, um, revolutionary peasant group in the in the 90s. And he he loved Don Quixote. Don Quixote was like his Bible, and he said it's the uh, what, something like it's the best book out there on uh, guerrilla warfare that exists, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think Sub Commander Marcos, he again he's he kind of portrays himself as this kind of romantic hero of the imagination, um, and I I guess yeah, that's kind of where I. I what I like as well. I don't know. That's sort of where I'm coming from as well with this. But yeah, I just want to say too. I think this idea of, of this Nor mentioned. I mean, there is a there is a to me that's the most powerful part of this whole thing is that the mind and our belief are so powerful. I think that and that's what's being conveyed at a certain level. Whether it's the whether that belief is constructed by people creating a Truman-like world uh, world reality for you. And mm. that, that it, and how and how that can influence the belief of one individual, in this case Don, 
or whether like in the second book or whether like in the first book it's just his his beliefs about the world and his kind of falling in love with enchantment and these 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 ideas how just how powerful ideas can be really like that ideas I mean, there's so many quotes like ideas are the you know true and engine of the world or that's that's a that's a bastardization of <laughs> a poor paraphrase of a few quotes you know but, you know the, he read so much that his brain dried up. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the science of the time, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's cool. The first chapter, he just yeah. he's like reading, and he starts out. He's reading these books, and I, I don't remember the exact lines, but he's like, "All right, I'll just become one of these, you know, a knight errant," and, and well, just decides. I was reading somewhere also that that the scene where they're burning his books. Is kind of this sly parody of the uh, the Inquisition burning heretics, mm-hmm. and so um, we were talking before about how like um, Galatea was accepted, and so it's like maybe maybe Cervantes can survive the Inquisition, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but that's that's totally part of the context as well, you know. Wow. Um, well, we're gonna call this forty two minutes, and then we'll bring in David because he wants to join us. Uh, so awesome. Yeah, we've been listening to 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club on 42 Minutes, production of Sick Book Radio, sickbook.com. <laughs> <laughs> Check it all out. Uh, thanks so much, and no more Proverbs, Sancho. All right, let's have David. <laughs> I, he would say that all the time. No more Proverbs, Sancho. And then Don Quixote would hit him with, with like two Proverbs after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>